Exodus 15, and today we're looking at verses 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard They tremble. Pains have seized the uh, the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and the horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask again that your spirit would be with us as your word is opened. As we examine this song, we pray that our response would be one of praise of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, those of you who know me well know that I don't really like singing. Don't like singing. 
Uh, I do like songs. I like to hear songs, but singing I don't like. And those of you who have stood near me when I sing understand why I don't like singing very much. Uh, but there's a time and place for singing, and here we see an expression of that in God's Word. In fact, this is the first song that's recorded in Scripture. There is reference to singing beforehand, but this is the first actual song recorded in Scripture. And uh, as far as we know, I, I went and looked and tried to find the oldest songs, and it looks like that this may be the oldest, at least, lyrics of songs recorded in history. Previously, Israel had groaned, but now their groaning has become a song of praise to God. Think back all the way back to Exodus 2, in verses 23 through 25, this is what we read there. It says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so beforehand, they cry out to God, they groan to God, they pray for help. Now God has granted that. What is the natural response but that of worship? And in fact, we've talked about all along that this was really the purpose for which they were being rescued. God was bringing them out so that they would no longer serve Pharaoh, but serve God. And we've talked about all along that this service is really one of worship. Pharaoh viewed himself as a God. They were doing his bidding. Now God is saying he's rescuing them and calling them to his worship. So they're redeemed. They're rescued for the purpose of worship, which they now begin to do together corporately. So let's look together at the song and what we can learn from it. It is a song of praise. And we see in verse 1 that it is directed to God. Then Moses... And the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I thought there's really a good first uh, application point for us to think about. Who are we singing for when we sing? I told you I don't like to sing, but I sing hymns because they're for God. We know that from God's word that there are ways in which our corporate singing benefits all of us. But the primary direction is to God. We sing our praises to God. We gather together to worship not foremost for our own benefit, but for the worship of our God. And so they sing to God this song. It is praising Him and it is directed toward Him. Also in verse 1, the first word there says, Then, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. And you see even in the beginning of the song what the nature of the then is. What is it referring to? I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. And so really the then is a response to what we see at the end of chapter 14 that we looked at last week. Just a reminder, look back at verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. And so if we follow the flow, ignore the chapter break for a second, you see what's going on here. God has rescued his people in the Red Sea. They've passed by on dry land. We see that being recounted here. But the Egyptians 
they see their bodies washing up on the shore, and that leads them to praise their God. Their response is one of praise. It's natural for us to sing praise to God when we behold his greatness, when we see him for who he is. Back in chapter 14, verse 14, we saw that there was a time for silence. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So be still, be quiet, just watch the salvation that God will bring. But we understand as well there's a time for rejoicing and worship and praise of our God when we see that salvation accomplished. Throughout God's word, we see people responding in worship when they behold the greatness of God. Uh, Job 38.7, I said this, this is the first psalm recorded, but Job 38.7 tells us, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And it's referring to the creation. So when God made the world, we're told the morning stars sang together. And I believe the sons of God, speaking here of angels, shouted for joy. And so there was praise when the creation was seen. God's power, his glory was manifested in the creation. And what is the natural response for those who behold it? It's one of worship. We have multiple accounts of this at victories that Israel will accomplish by God's power. God will deliver them. God will defeat their enemies. And often the response is one of praise. One example would be when God delivered David from his enemies. 2 Samuel 22 Uh, We read several psalms, but Psalm 40, verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so a new song comes to David as he sees the salvation of his God. Likewise, we see that the returned exiles, when they come back to Jerusalem, they sing praises to God. When Jesus was born, we see both Mary and the angels giving praise to God. And so their deliverance demanded a song of praise to God. Then they praised God. We see as well at the very end that Miriam and the women repeated the chorus. And so really all of Israel is singing this song of praise. The fact that it records what they sing, sing to the Lord, verse 21, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I said already it could be the chorus. It's how it begins in 15.1. But Miriam, she may be just recording the starting of the song. Maybe she re-sang the entire song. They at least re-sang the chorus. They danced and praised God. And I've said already they were rescued to serve God. They were rescued to serve God. And really worship is that service to God. That God calls us to render to Him. Give to Him the worship that's due His name. Psalm 106, verses 9 through 12. We see not just a recounting of, or not just a praise of God for what he did in that moment, but Israel will continue to sing God's praises for what he did there. Psalm 106, beginning verse 9. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. So in subsequent years, Israel will sing his praise by recounting what God did there and the praise that they sang there. 
And so too, even now as we look at that, we're continuing to give praise to our God for what he did in delivering Israel from Egypt. We have another example of future generations continuing to sing God's praises for this salvation in Psalm 66, 1 through 7. The entire psalm is dedicated to this. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. Whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. And so here's a psalm of praise. It calls us to praise God. Praise God. Worship him. Recount his awesome deeds. And when it gets down to it, what is the awesome deed? That they recount. That they remember. They look back to this moment. That salvation. That archetype of salvation. How God will deliver his people by defeating their enemies. And they worship God for it. And he even includes in that song, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Is that not a reference to Pharaoh who is worshipped as God? Don't exalt yourself. Why? Lest you fall into the judgment of God. And so likewise, not just here in Psalm 66, but we see all throughout God's word, we're called to sing. Even those of us who don't like singing are called to sing praises to God. He is worthy of that praise. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And so here we have a positive command. We're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our heart to God. What motivates, what drives that worship? Thankfulness to God. Is exactly what we see happening here in the Exodus. Are they not thankful? They should have died. What hope did they have against the Egyptians? None. And yet God saved all of them and killed all the Egyptians. And so are they thankful? Yeah, they're thankful. If you've ever come close to dying and didn't, you have a sense of the thankfulness that you have. And how much more so when God miraculously delivers you from death. Philippians 4.4 4 tells us, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. While not a command specifically to sing, one expression of our rejoicing is that of song. Our joy in God overflows into song. And again, we see that rejoice in the Lord. It's in God whom we are to rejoice which really leads us to our next point, which is the object to praise. Let's look at what it says here about the object to praise. I've said already they sing to Yahweh, but we also see that they sing about him. They're singing to him, and they're singing about him. In the 18 verses of the song, we have 51 references to God in those 18 verses. 51 references. Uh, there are 18 times in which the name Yahweh is mentioned 
And there are 33, noun, uh, 33 times that a pronoun for Yahweh or for God is mentioned. Altogether, 51 times his name is mentioned. I think often we see psalms coming out today, Christian psalms that are a lot about me and not a lot about God. But this is one that even though they experience the deliverance, we see a focus upon God. We also see the idea of exaltation. Look at verse 2, the second half. It says, this is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Really, this is a purpose for which we exist. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And also, this is one of the purposes that we have stated for us as a church. That our church exists, that we would exalt the Lord. And I think this is tied together with our understanding of what worship is. And as we think about singing to God, as we think about worship, it's good for us to recount what have we said about worship here at Grace Fellowship Church. Well, here at GFC, we believe worship is a response to greatness. And so we have defined worship as seeing and savoring the character and works of God as revealed in his word. Now, if we think about what do we see happening here on the banks of the Red Sea. They're worshiping God. But what is that What is that worship? It's a response to greatness. What is the greatness that they've seen? God has fully and finally defeated the Egyptians. They can think back to all the pledges that took place. All the miracles that he's rendered. But ultimately this was the moment. Pharaoh is drowned in the Red Sea. The technological military advances are defeated. In the Red Sea. The greatest army, the greatest empire in the world defeated in the Red Sea. Who is that great? God is that great. And how do we respond when we see that kind of greatness? Our response is one of worship. I would even say this is true for us in all of life. In all of life, we respond to greatness by worship. It's not always song, but it's some form of praise. I've said before, when we see our favorite athletes do something that we know physically should be impossible, I've thought all along that Messi somehow has a way to slow time down and he sees other people move faster. Superhero powers, right? You see these kind of things and maybe it's, we applaud. I told you I'm not a big singer. I personally prefer the golf clap, you know. But whatever it is, we're moved to praise, to give some kind of expression of this is greatness that we're witnessing. And so we have seen worship as a response to greatness. And we said seeing and savoring the character and works of God. That's what our worship leaders seek to do every Lord's Day. To point you either to the character of God or to some work of God that really expresses his character. So that we can respond to greatness in worship. So if that's true, what is it that they're responding to? What are they worshiping? Well, we see in the song it's recounted what he did. Look at verse 11. The second half, it says, Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So as we begin looking at this, we see that God is awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Why worship God? It's because of his awesome deeds, the wonders that he's done. What are those wonders? It's all the pledges. It's the Red Sea. It's everything that we have seen so far in the book of Exodus. And so the pledges in Egypt, 
are mentioned. Dry land in the Red Sea is specifically mentioned in verse 19. The drowning of the Egyptians becomes a major theme, obviously, for what they just beheld in verses 4 through 7, and then again in verse 10. Let's look there. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And then look at verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And so they're responding to a specific event, the defeat of the Egyptians by drowning in the Red Sea. We see as well in verse 9 that the enemies boasted. It says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And so all these absolutes, this is what's going to happen. There's not a doubt. We're going to defeat them. We're going to kill them. They boasted. But God proved himself to be far more powerful than them. Which again goes back to Psalm 66 and says, Don't exalt yourself. Why? Because there's someone greater. No matter how great any of us ever will be, God is far greater and far more worthy of our praise. It's not just the defeating of them. It's also redemption, which includes that defeat. But God redeemed them and he led them out of Egypt. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love. That's your covenant love. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So they're praising God for redemption. What is redemption here? Well, we're not talking at this point about the spiritual redemption. They're talking specifically of they were redeemed from the bondage to slavery that they had in Egypt. God has taken them from slaves and made them free. He has redeemed them. And as I've said before, this becomes a type of of the spiritual salvation that we experience. As we're bound in sin and under Satan's dominion, God redeems us from that and gives us new life in Christ Jesus. But here they're rejoicing that God's brought them out of this and that he led them out of Egypt. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now think back to what we just saw in the previous chapter. How did God lead them? Not by the short way, right? Their their divine GPS took them in a way that they never would have gone. And it got them trapped in the Red Sea, by the Red Sea, surrounded by the Egyptian army. Were they praising God in chapter 14? What did they say? They were angry at God? They were angry at Moses. Why did you bring us out here? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that we couldn't have died there and been buried? Why did we have to go in the desert to be buried? And now, they've crossed the Red Sea, and what's the response? Praise God for the way He's led us. Boy, I think, isn't that true in our lives so often? We're shaking our fists at God. We're upset for the providence that God has brought in our life. Why do I have to walk this path? Why is this what I'm going through? Maybe in the midst of suffering or in grief. Why has God brought me this way? Only down the road 
to rejoice. Perhaps because we see, maybe we never behold it in this life, but to rejoice that God's ways are higher than our ways. He knows better than we do. He was doing right all along, believe it or not. So now they've gone from complaining about God's leading, thinking the GPS is broken, to realizing, no, this is the way. And even notice what it says. He has guided them by your, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What is the holy abode of which they speak? I have a feeling it's not the shores of the Red Sea. It's not even Mount Sinai. Ultimately, it's Zion. It's Jerusalem. It's the promised land, which they're not going to enter for 40 more years. And yet they're singing in the past tense. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. They believe now that God is going to do it. God's leading them, and so it's as good as done. They're going to enter into the presence of God. Remember, I've said all along, that's really what we've tried to express uh, in our sermon series on the book of Exodus. And we talked about uh, our theme there, from bondage to glory on the front of your bulletin. From bondage to glory. God's brought them out of this. And what's the glory, ultimately, that we said? What is it that they desire? Remember, ever since the fall, man has longed to be in the presence of God again. And they're rejoicing now, not just that they have been redeemed from bondage in Egypt, but also that they've been brought into God's holy abode. They've been brought into the presence of God. It's not yet fully realized. But already they're rejoicing in it. We've taught at Sinai, God's presence will be manifested. The tabernacle will be built and it will be dwelt. Uh, God will dwell in the midst of his people all around them. And yet it's still not fully realized. Christ will come to earth and dwell among us, tabernacle among us. And it's not yet fully realized. We're still to this day longing for the day when Christ will return. There will be a new earth and a new heaven. And we will dwell eternally in the heavenly abode. But already we within can rejoice that God's leading us to that holy abode. In verse 2, he specifically says, my salvation. Speaking of God saying, God is my salvation. And so, again, God is praised for what he did. He's redeemed them. He's led them. He has saved them. But God is also praised for who he is, which are really, again, the two things that we talked about in our worship here at GFC, who he is and what he has done. So what does it say about who he is? I think we see in verse 6, his power, his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Glorious in power. And again, how's it demonstrated? He's defeated not just Egypt, but the gods of Egypt. Verse 7 says, he is great in majesty. In the greatness of your majesty, he is majestic, greatly majestic, beyond anything else in this world that we behold to be majestic. But notice also his wrath and justice are praised. Again, the end of verse 6 and verse 7, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy in the greatness of your majesty, you overflow, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. So why is God worshiped here? 
this is so hard, I think, for us today in this culture. The, the popular books that are selling on Christian bookstores are the ones who are denying that there's hell at all. God is a God of love. Yes, but we don't praise just one aspect of God. We realize as well, and they're praising God because God is a God of wrath. Just wrath. God is a God of justice. He has judged the Egyptians. He shatters his enemies. In the greatness of, how is God's majesty manifested? In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. God's chosen us to be majestic in defeating anything else that would put itself forward as being more majestic than him. God overthrows his adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. It's like a fire when it hits the dry grass, the hay, the straw. It just takes off. You can't stop it. God is like that. He consumes in his fury those who would oppose him. In verse 3 it says, The Lord, or Yahweh, is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And so it even ties together the idea of, Who is Yahweh? Remember the question that Pharaoh asked? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I don't know who this God is. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, now they're talking about, Who is Yahweh? He is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Part of what it means to be Yahweh has to do with being a man of war. I don't know if we think about God in those kind of terms when we think about who is God. He is a God, a man of war. Listen to Revelation 19, verses 1 through 3. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And so in eternity, in heaven, there is worship of God for what? For God's judgment upon his enemies. And I think, and I, I really, I want to be careful in this, but I, I prayed and thank God earlier for the Supreme Court decision. I think we should be rejoicing in that decision. And yet, what was the response in our nation? In many cities, it was protest. People are angry that they can't kill children anymore. Or at least in some states, they still can. But the Supreme Court decision upset people that we're not able to do that. And I think of the evil of those who would oppose God. Retribution, justice is not ours. It is God's. We are to speak the truth in love, desiring that things will change. And I pray that this is a first step in that change. But as I think about that, those people who are so upset, desiring to kill a child. And I think of Revelation 19. This great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality God has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever. There is a day of judgment that's coming. And though it's hard for us, and I think it would almost be, there's a way in which we could wrongly do this and rejoice in seeing harm done to those who would oppose God. And that's not what God's called us to here. 
God's called us to advance the kingdom through, not the sword, but through the gospel. And yet, I want you to understand that there will be a day in eternity where we will sing God's praises because He has judged those who have opposed Him and His people. Those who put Christians to death. Those who spilled the blood of the martyrs. And I know that's not easy for us now. But I'm saying, this is what we see in God's Word. And they even, Israel experienced this as they praised God for His judgment upon Egypt. Now, along with that, they also praise him because he is above the gods. And I think we've done a good job as we've gone through and seen that in the book of Exodus so far. But look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? It's a rhetorical question. Among the gods. And what's the answer? No God is like you. How does Israel know this? Because in every plague, God was defeating one or more of Egypt's gods. He showed himself to be more powerful than their gods. Your gods cannot compete. And then on top of it, here's Pharaoh who's holding himself up as the god of Egypt to be worshipped. And God just killed him like he was nothing. He drowned him in the sea. And so what's the response? Who can compare To this God. Who is like Yahweh? Among all the gods. We're not just talking about people here. We're talking about spiritual forces. Demons. Angels. Of all of them. Who is like our God? None of them can compare. He's on a whole nother level. He is their creator. They bow down before him. He rules in all sovereignty. No one can stop his hand. Who is like you, O Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Numbers 33.4 says, While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. God executed judgments on their gods. He has shown himself to be more powerful. Deuteronomy 32.39 See now that I... Even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. The Israelites have seen that. The Egyptians have seen this. And so they're praising God because he is above all gods. I wonder sometimes if Christians don't think of God and Satan as almost like the yin-yang. There's this balance, there's this parallel between the two, and you know, they're, they're fighting back and forth. It's not like that at all. Our God is sovereign. He is above all gods, Satan included. It also says majestic and holiness. It doesn't really elaborate, but God, something about all that has happened throughout the pleds in Egypt and the Red Sea has communicated to God's people, he is holy. Perhaps it's the fact that he would not tolerate the worship of false gods. But whatever it is, he has demonstrated himself to be holy. And verse 13 also talks about his steadfast love. You have led in your steadfast love. That's his faithfulness, his promise, his covenant love. Remember back in chapter 2 we looked at, they groaned, they cried out to God, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He has shown his love for his people and his faithfulness to his promises. 
I also want you to see in the song that there's a future element that's highlighted. It's really our third point. There's a future element. Verses 14 through 17. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And so they're rejoicing. They're singing praises to God because of his judgment on other nations. In particular, that God's judgment on Egypt resulted in fear of the Israelites and their God amongst all the inhabitants of Canaan, the land that God would give them. Now, as they recount this, it's quite remarkable that it's going to be about a year before they get to the borders. And when they send the spies in, you remember the response. We we can't defeat them. And how quickly do they forget that there was a greater army that God's already defeated? If they just trusted and believed and remembered this, God is the one who's going to fight this battle for you. God will give you the land. They're going to tremble. They're going to melt away before you. This is exactly what we read in God's word. In Deuteronomy 2.4, we see the Edomites were afraid of them. In Numbers 22.3, the Moabites are afraid of them. The Canaanites in Joshua 2, verse 9 and 10, and then again in chapter chapter 5, verse 1. And so God sends his fear before them that they could have the land. Exodus 23, 27. God says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And again, God's done this and yet his people shrink back. Exodus 18, 10 through 11. Jethro Uh, Moses' father-in-law said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And then one more example, Joshua 2, 9-10. You guys remember Rahab as the spies come in? Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. So they're praising God for the fear that's going to go throughout the land. And it does. And you think, how do they even know this? They're on the shores yet. How does word travel? You know, where's the news channel that they're turning to? You know, the phone buzz and say, hey, guess what just happened? But word will travel. And as the word reaches them, what's the response? One of fear. But already they're rejoicing knowing that they're going to be afraid. And then when they get there, that's exactly what they see. Rahab even testifies to the fact that all the people of the land have melted away. We know that God's given you this land. They also rejoice in the fact that God is giving Israel the promised land. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. 
the place of the Lord, which you have made for your abode, which again is Mount Zion. He says, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Has the sanctuary been built? The temple? No, but God has proclaimed that to be his holy abode, the place where they would set up Jerusalem and the temple. And so they're going to, again, God's leading them to dwell with him, to his holy abode. And that becomes a type and a figure for us of of heaven and the reality that we too are being led to one day dwell with him. And then verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. What an appropriate time to sing that. Pharaoh's reign has ended. He's the ruler of the greatest empire. It's over. He's done for. But who's still on the throne? God is. He will reign forever. And if Pharaoh can't stop him, who could possibly bring God's reign to an end? Pharaoh's reign came to an end because God conquered him. But there is no one powerful enough to conquer God. And so he will reign forever and ever. And of course we see the reality of that in Christ who is seated on the throne even now reigning from heaven one day to return and make that manifest and every knee will bow and tongue will confess him to be Lord. Revelation 5.12 speaks of the eternal reign of Christ as it praises him in heaven. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb. Where are they at? They're surrounding the throne on which the lamb sits, singing praises to him because he is worthy, the lamb who is slain. Let's make some final application. First, I want you to see that Jesus has redeemed us. Those of you who are Christians today, you have been redeemed by the blood of that lamb. And that he's leading us to his holy abode, even as we see in verse 13. Guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is exactly what we see God is doing for us in Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why the cross? Why did Christ have to suffer that he might bring us to God? If there's ever going to be any chance that we could eternally forever dwell in God's holy abode, it has to be through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so through our trust in him, we see Jesus is leading us to dwell with him and with God forever in the new earth and new heavens. Secondly, the cross and the resurrection should cause us to sing, even those of us who don't like singing. We should overflow in praise when we think about the cross and what Jesus accomplished there. We see this in Isaiah, and I know Isaiah was before the cross. But prophetically, speaking of the day of Christ, who would come from the stump of Jesse, just really means he's a descendant of David. But that one who would come from David, it says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. What's turned away God's anger? 
in that day, what day we're going to see the day of Christ. God's anger is turned away that he might comfort us. And then he says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord. God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. What is he quoting there? He is quoting Moses' song in the context of Jesus. Listen to verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And so sing praises to the Holy One of Israel who is great in our midst. Why? Because we're drawing wells from the water of salvation. Why? Because God was angry with us, rightly so, because we're sinners. And yet, He turned His anger away. How? Through the blood of the Son. That He might comfort us with the gospel. Again, in Revelation, we have another glimpse of worship in heaven. And we see something else interesting. I showed you already that Isaiah quotes this song and ties it in with Jesus. But we see this also in heaven. Where the song of Moses is combined with the song of the Lamb. The song of Jesus. Revelation 15, verses 3 through 4. And they, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for the righteous acts, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so the song of Moses is sung in heaven with the song of Jesus, with the song of the Lamb. And, and notice what it's about. The salvation that Christ has rendered. And notice also how it ends. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. God brings judgment upon Egypt. God brings judgment upon the nations of Canaan. But ultimately his goal is that all the nations of the world would turn to him and would come to him through the Lamb. Thirdly, I want you to see what a great expression of praise this is. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I think that's something that we could all sing. The Lord is my strength. He is our daily strength. He sustains us and upholds us. He ought to be our daily song, again, even though we may not like singing, if we really consider the Lord is our strength and the Lord is our salvation, our hearts should be moved to his praise and to his worship, even in song. Some of you are going to get on to me later who love singing or just, we've seen movies that are musicals. I just don't get it. Like no, I'm like, no one just starts singing and everybody joins in and we're all singing together in response to things happening. And then I see in our family sometimes how song just comes up, you know, not quite like a musical. But there are some of you who are like, oh, I'd love life if it were a musical. Okay, I understand. Don't get on to me later. Some of us struggle with it. But here's what I want you to see. The Lord is my strength and my salvation. I will praise him. 
if we see God to be our strength and our song, our salvation, our response ought to be one of praise. Matthew Henry says, when the mercy was fresh and they were much affected with it, then they sang this song. And then he applies it. He says, when we have received special mercy from God, we ought to be quick and speedy in our returns of praise to him. Before time and the deceitfulness of our own hearts destroy the good impressions that have been made. Do we sometimes delay praising God too long and we forget to do it at all? We ought to be a people who are quick to give God praise for the things that he does in our life, and in particular for the salvation that he's rendered to us in Jesus Christ each and every time we think upon it. Finally, in closing an application, I just want to ask the question, who is like the Lord, our God? Who is like the Lord among the gods? Maybe if we apply this to ourselves, we could say, how does God compare to your, the other objects of your worship? How does God compare to your gods? It's probably not the demonic powers that the Egyptians worshipped. But there may well be demonic powers behind the things that we do worship. Let me even say there are many legitimate pleasures that we delight in. But they too can become idols. If we place them above God. And so who is like the Lord to you? Where does he rank? How does he compare to everything else in your life that you enjoy and worship? There's no one like God. There ought to be no one like God in our hearts as well. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God beyond, above, unlike all the other gods. That though we would use the same word in English, God, we know it's far different. That they are created beings. Spiritual forces, but created beings by you. And you are so far superior to them. And Lord, you have given us a world that's fallen, that we struggle in, but also in which we find much joy and pleasure. Lord, help us not to make those things in which we delight to become idols, to place them above you. Help us to remember that there's no God who is like you. Lord, we ask that we would see you in all your glorious majesty and your holiness. And that our hearts would respond in worship. Even now as we close this service, that we would sing out to you praises. The praises that are due your name. O glorious one. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you remember our call to worship, the Apostle Paul was praying for this church in Ephesus. And he's saying that 